Hello, and welcome to the Trajectory Africa Rewind, a compilation of insights from the Trajectory Africa. The Trajectory Africa was a pop-up podcast series exploring the trajectory or pathway of venture capital and startup formation in Africa to identify a destination for African tech and the signposts that signal direction of travel. The goal of the series was to start to disentangle how African tech and venture is really working, given the unique landscape, market characteristics, business environment, and culture. Over the course of the last year or so, across 11 episodes, we've explored the key characteristics of African markets, the opportunities presented by digital commerce, SME financing, and fintech, and how they power the broader venture opportunity, what drives fund performance in terms of economics and structure, how funds raise money, and how LPs make investment decisions. It was such a privilege to have in-depth conversations with super smart, knowledgeable people about such meaty topics. But I thought it might be useful to take some time to reflect on those discussions and share some of the insights that hint at how African tech and VC functions. Let's call them guiding principles. Are these hard facts set in stone? Absolutely not. But perhaps they'll serve as operating assumptions that can be stress tested and explored. So with no further ado, let's get this rewind started with what I'll call the meta principle. You'll understand why in a second. Basically, the Trajectory Africa is a continuation of a learning journey I started with Chasing Outliers, a research report I co-authored to understand why the Silicon Valley VC model doesn't necessarily make sense for African markets. Perhaps obviously, the principle here is that the modus operandi for African VC and tech won't be cut and pasted from other markets. It'll be built from the ground up where the action is happening. Jake Kendall, partner at DFS Lab, puts it really well when he says, I guess in general, there's just the notion that like, we can't, we can't take models directly off the shelf and, and apply them. Of course, the story of the moment, apart from the global economic downturn and the implications for founders who are fundraising or the governance and performance reckoning that seems to be happening in the Nigerian startup ecosystem and beyond, is a $5 billion of investment capital that landed in Africa in 2021, according to Brighter Bridges and Partech. But what's driving that influx of capital? Why now? There are multiple ways to think about this, and we'll explore a less rosy perspective at the end of this episode. For now, though, we'll hear from Dr. Dotun Oluwaporoku. He's lived many lives as a founder and investor, but is currently the chief commercial officer of TMAPT, a fintech facilitating financial services for the next billion African consumers. He'll explain quite poetically our first principle, that now is the time for Africans to solve their own problems and build their own future. For the first time in the history of the black race. We, we live longer than our forefathers. There are more Africans that live longer now than before. There are more Africans that are now more educated than ever before. More Africans are now upwardly mobile than ever before. More Africans are now connected to people all over the world than ever before. And information is now widespread amongst Africans than ever before. And we can move from places to places faster than ever before. That creates a new, there's a privilege. If you, look at the, if you look at the numbers generally, there are more Africans who are living better than generations before them. And there are still more challenges. We have more challenges than ever before as well. But we now have opportunity to solve those problems ourselves using technology. And I believe that in the next maybe 10 years, the richest Africans and the most influential Africans will be the ones that have solved the most problems in a scalable way and probably using technology. The richest African in the next 10 years will not be guys that have made money from mining or guys that made money from community or stuff like before. It'll be guys who have solved the biggest problem using technology. And we're going to get there soon. 
Another key aspect of the meta-principle, that the future of African venture won't be copy-pasted, is the idea that entrepreneurship is a catalyst for economic change, a concept that Babakar Sek, Senior Investment Officer at Proparco, aptly explains. And entrepreneurship is one of the key ways in which people can shape societies. And I think that being able to fund these entrepreneurs to transform our economies sector by sector, subsector by subsector, is something that is going to be profitable and at the same time very impactful for the continent. So I'm very optimistic about the sector for the next decades to come. And finally, the why now question that Dotun answered can also find a response in data because we actually have a sense of what escape velocity looks like in other emerging markets. Let's hear from Jake again. Five years ago in 20, I want to say 2014, maybe, or 2015 in Southeast Asia, there was, I think like three unicorns and about 2 billion worth of investment, almost exactly the same as there is now in Africa. And then since then, I think there's been, I think there's now like 19 unicorns total and there's 30 or 40 acquisitions from those unicorns of smaller companies. And so the market has just taken off there in Southeast Asia. And the the investors and the other market participants who were in at that earlier stage have just, you know, done great and been part of that growth. So we've established that now's the time for Africa to paraphrase Shakira's World Cup anthem. But what is it time for exactly? What's the big picture nature of the opportunity that founders and investors are capturing? Well, in short, the code word is digitization. Building a digital economy that brings the traditional online, dethrones King Cash, and digitizes retail commerce. Agosa Moigui, Managing General Partner of GoVC, expresses it, the opportunity to organize the offline quite succinctly. There's still a very significant amount of what I'll call startup value that can get created in organizing the offline in Africa. There is a very significant amount of, of value to be created in building products and services that eliminate and mitigate friction. And Jake explains the virtues of going from all cash everything to digital transactions, which is the core of our second principle. The future of African venture opportunities is digitizing African economies. Yeah, I mean, that's fundamentally where we think the biggest generational economic opportunity is right now in Africa is really digitizing the economy and going from what is... 90 to 95 percent cash-based to a much more digital economy where things can happen online, things can happen at a distance, things can happen through mobile, etc. And not just sort of like putting up the Amazon for Africa, which we actually don't really believe in, but really thinking through what are all the component digital services and offline to online physical connectivity that need to come into being to really digitize the economy. That's what we see as the biggest opportunity. And we see it happening across multiple different domains, in particular, focusing on marketplaces and platform models that allow what have traditionally been non-digital, often very informal markets for services or goods to be digitized and brought on to the internet or to the digital world. And things also that really work out some of the logistics that are necessary for for digital transactions to be feasible and useful. Like if you can, ordering something online is easy. I can actually order something right now from almost any of the Amazons or Amazon equivalents around the world, but getting it shipped to me was not necessarily easy unless I happen to be in a place where shipping and addressing and last mile logistics and all that stuff is um, easy to do. And and in some places, 
paying for it in, in digital formats, not easy to do either. So there's a set of kind of almost underlying fundamental service components that need to be built first before you can digitize. Now, we can take this logic a step further to unpack the opportunity that Jake is investing in, digital commerce for SMEs, which he ably describes. We think of it broadly. I, I keep using examples of online commerce, but digitizing also means small retail shops and other small businesses pay for their supplies and get them delivered through digital marketplaces or digitizing just basic day-to-day payments and, and transfers and all kinds of other things, digitizing the organization of trade across borders, just in general, helping to digitize businesses, small businesses in particular, but creating that sort of digital solution stack for, for small businesses. Most small and informal businesses, most African commerce goes through relatively small, relatively informal, so formal and formal, not binary, it's like a spectrum, right? But like relatively informal stores and small businesses. And so digitizing them, giving them online presence and, and digital payments and digital marketplaces to buy their goods. We see a lot of value in kind of physical logistics and that last mile movement of, of goods and people. Related to that are agent networks, which take money and convert it into digital value or vice versa. So mobile money agent networks, but there's a lot of now banking agents and other kind of agent networks that, that allow people to do financial transactions. Both of those go together. It's like moving goods and people and moving money and value from a physical to a digital form. So we're excited about that kind of stuff. All those kinds of things are going to be um, huge opportunities, we think. Of course, the truth is this opportunity, it's so large because there are very real hidden costs for businesses that transact primarily in cash. Here's Jake again. But then what's more fundamentally, right? Like there's all kinds of ways in which doing things in cash, even though it feels free and, and, and cheap and easy and actually often like the best way to do things, creates a huge amount of kind of invisible costs or, or not, not obvious to the people who are using it, I think. So banks spend a huge amount of money to move cash around, to restock ATMs, to defend cash in transit and cash in storage. Business owners lose a lot of money in cash. They sometimes know and sometimes they don't know, but they often lose you know money to employees and, and stuff that just quote unquote leaks. They have to reorganize their businesses in weird ways when they don't have to, to hold cash. They can leave the store and they can take payments in a lot of different formats and things like that. So there, there's a huge amount of what sort of friction and cost and having everything in cash does. And it, it's just like I said, there's a huge number of kinds of transactions that are just not feasible, right? Like you can't do online commerce. You can't do very large transactions. You can't do anything really at a distance, et cetera. So, and like I said, it's for us, the thesis is not just around digitizing the movement of value, i.e. you know, payment, but also the organization of economic activity, the logistical aspects, the search for counterparties or people who you want to buy things or sell things to, all that kind of stuff is as important to digitize as the actual payment itself. But cash is still king or queen, so for now, there will still be a physical aspect to most digital solutions, as Denai Muzandu, Senior Investor Relations Associate at HPE Growth, explains. 
But also the reality is, is that we can talk about fintech and we can talk about advancements and financial inclusion, but cash is still king in Africa. And the physical attributes are still going to be there for as long as we still have uh, long distances of dirt road that we cover between places, for as long as we can talk about a last mile, for as long as we have agents that cash in and cash out money, they are still some very fundamental physical aspects about the continent that we just can't run away from. Still, from a microeconomic perspective, digitizing the last mile of commerce means selling people a wider variety of necessities and ensuring that the small shops that comprise informal retail can get access to these essentials, as well as the financing to purchase them, as Jake shares. And we think that that's an area to see a lot of innovation and growth. We've invested in a number of companies that help small businesses in restaurants and mom and pop shops organize their business and get their stock and buy their stocks that they're going to sell to their customers and uh, be bit financing and lots of the other things that those businesses need. And generally, 80-20, a lot of those businesses, small businesses and retail are selling basically necessities, right? A lot of them are selling basic home goods, clothing, and other things that people consider necessities. And a lot of that stuff is about creating marketplaces so that they can get those necessities more cheaply. They can get a wider catalog because just because just because things are a necessity doesn't mean that people want to always eat the exact same thing every day or, or people do want a lot of variety in their choice of necessities and make sure that they can be delivered super quickly in a really predictable way so that the people who run those small businesses who are working really hard don't have to leave or worry about that logistics component or, or go to some centralized market that takes them out of their store for, for hours or half a day at a time. So there's, you know, there's a huge amount of efficiency and, and uh, opportunity, we think, in, in that area just in general, which is digitizing the last mile of commerce. And the last piece of the puzzle is a macroeconomic perspective. As Jake explains, African economies can become more productive when the factors, inputs and outputs of production, are more efficiently utilized. It's the main part, I think, is when you can digitize those kinds of things, you can often expand dramatically the scope of the market. You know, if you don't have to do it in person, you can do it with many more people at a much greater distance. And this, this applies sort of generally. You can often also kind of utilize inputs and factors and means of production better, people's time. You can utilize inputs to production and things like that better when they're organized and coordinated through digital means. And that's huge. I mean, Africa, there's no reason that it should be lower output than the rest of the world. There's a lot of means of production and things, but often they're just not efficiently used, right? So if you can organize things better, organize all that coming together better to create economic activity, that's, that's huge as well. But there's also other elements of, of doing things that don't exist and need to be built, right? So identity systems and the ability to create trust, some of those kinds of things. Shifting gears a bit, in the brief digitalization story we just told, we spoke mostly about small businesses. But why is that? Isn't VC, which is arguably focused on the pursuit of unicorns, mostly about selling goods and services to huge numbers of digitally savvy consumers with large amounts of disposable income? I mean, sure. But remember what we said about cutting and pasting models. These assumptions about consumers might not be a great fit for many African markets. This means we're back with Jake to do some additional heavy lifting, this time to share insights from the research DFS Lab did to quantify the purchasing power of African consumers. 
This is the foundation of our third principle. African consumers may have limited purchasing power, but it's possible to increase and enable this consumption. Right. So for people who are on a dollar, two dollars a day, it's very small amount of discretionary income. Not because there's not a lot. There's a lot of people at that level, but they just have very, very tiny amounts of money each, a few cents or uh, you know, a couple cents per day, really. And you get up to the three, four, five. That's where it starts to peak because that's where you have more money and still a relatively large population. And then after that, it starts to go down in the sense that even though a person at $10 a day has much more discretionary income, there's so many fewer than the total amount of money at that level goes down. And so we thought that was important because it made clear to us that actually, even if you factor in some of these things like people with lower incomes having a smaller percentage uh, and a smaller amount of money that they can spend it in a discretionary way on non-necessities, then you still, because the population is much bigger at those three, four, five dollar a day sort of level, that's where the biggest amount of discretionary spending power is. The problem is that when you think about it and dig into it a little bit further, Yes, there's more discretionary income, but it's, but it's spread out across a lot more people. And if you think in unit economics, okay, I've got to go then recruit as a customer and serve many more people than if I just go up the income spectrum a little bit further to the seven, eight, ten dollar a day crowd. It's not clear that there's a big economic activity when you factor that all in. Of course, what's really interesting is the extent to which the reality of limited purchasing power still applies to one of the reportedly largest consumer markets in Africa, Nigeria. Obeowa Obaseki, senior associate at Steers Data, breaks down how you go from a 200 million person plus total addressable market or total market demand to a much smaller serviceable addressable market or the percentage of the TAM that's in reach. So when it comes to consumer markets in Nigeria, so like you said, so there's a lot of conversation and commentary about the size of Nigeria based on the population that we have. But however, we know that that's not the actual market size and it's really constrained by who is able to access the products and services and who actually is willing to. And when we look at those two different areas, we can then start to get a different idea of what this might look like. So who is actually able to influence this is affected by a number of different things. So first of all, I think the one one area that people tend to look at quite closely is the affordability. So a few different sources, including the World Bank, say that under about $4 a day, there's very little discretionary income and really finances are all going towards spending on necessity. And so the consumer class for any non-essential products will begin at those with an income of over $4 per day. However, if we do look at essential items such as like food, Indomie, for instance, that will have a much larger market size than something that we would say is non-essential, like maybe entertainment, or if we're looking at digital services that haven't really penetrated the market yet. But even outside of actual affordability, there are still a number of things that affect the consumer class. So if we look at infrastructure, for instance, when it comes to accessing broadband or smartphone ownership, there's only about 50% of the population, for instance, that own smartphones. There's only about 50% coverage of broadband penetration, which means that there's about half the country, which is roughly about 100 million people that can't access digital services or digital goods. Even when we even go beyond that as well, if they do have them, kind of intermingling a bit with the affordability is the ability to pay to access the internet. So 
Uh, Dalberg Household Survey, for instance, said that about close to 20% of people in Nigeria report that they have difficulty paying for data. And we can even dig a bit deeper and see how prohibitive the cost of data is when we see that in Nigeria, in order to afford the cheapest data bundle, the average person has to work 34 hours. And globally, the average time for this is 10 minutes. It's quite crazy when you actually look at it like that. So that th- those things can significantly constrain the market size of the consumer class in Nigeria. When it comes to actually estimating what the market size is, we can use like a different a number of different things to look at. So I mentioned poverty and World Bank statistics. So if the World Bank estimates that about 40% of Nigerians live below the poverty line and a further 25% are vulnerable to poverty. And that means that about 65% of the population is likely to be outside of the consumption class for non-essential items, which leaves us with only about 70 million Nigerians. If we also then take a look at unemployment as a different measure, out of a labor force of 70 million people, there are only 31 million people in full-time employment. So if we have out of 200 million people, 70 million people available to work, only 31 million people get an income from employment. And even worse, if we look at it for the youth class between the ages of 15 to 34, only about 64% of the youth class is unemployed. And that's quite significant because the youth are the most likely to be first adopters of digital technology, but so many of them aren't able to consume because we have such dire employment statistics and they don't have enough consumption power. And then as well, I know this paints quite a bleak picture. (laughs) When we look at household expenditure as well, which is a different measure that we can look at. So outside of income, outside of employment, looking at how people actually spend when they do have money non-food expenditure is only 43%. So once people have spent money on everything that they have to spend on food, only 43% of it is left. And if we strip out transport, health, education, rent, there's only about 10% of total household expenditure available. So starting from that 200 million, when we look at these things that constrain consumption, we end up with a much, much smaller number than it looks like from the surface. Another important consideration is consumer attitudes about adopting digital solutions. This recalls one of the foundational assumptions about consumers in VC scale opportunities that we mentioned earlier, their willingness to consume digital products and services. Abeowa explains why this might not always be the case in Nigeria. As we touched on earlier, there is this kind of thing where there's a bit of trust issues when it comes to digital services. We're not really sure of them. We're not really sure if we can trust them. And there can be businesses that have a physical environment, but are tech enabled. And this can be one of the ways that we start to see people adopt more digital services, where it's an offline business with online element that kind of sensitizes the market towards using these digital services. And then we can maybe slowly move them towards technology-enabled businesses. So an example of this would be, for instance, when it comes to agriculture and investing in smallholder farmers or crowdsource lending. So there's a number of companies that do that in Nigeria. 
And in Africa, somebody that we had spoken to had said that even when they do provide funding to smallholder farmers, there's also an element of, for instance, providing them with mobile phones, teaching them how to use this, teaching them how to maybe also through digital platforms, either with like their mobile phones, for instance, giving them training programs on how to increase their crop yield and how to get the most productivity from their farms and things like that. So you do have businesses that combine like, for instance, that tech aspect, which is training smallholder farmers to have more productive yields, but you also meet them where they're at with maybe like agents or kind of physical help as well. So I think also seeing a rise in hybrid businesses to move people closer towards an environment where they're unfamiliar with while still providing them with that physical support that they're used to. But perhaps not surprisingly, consumption patterns aren't set in stone. They can be altered by factors that can influence consumer behavior at the systems level. Let's hear from Abeoa again on how this works. So for instance, even with consumer attitudes, so something that we had spoken about internally is like, you know, when you have these African prices of Spotify and Netflix, for instance. So the, I think Spotify in Nigeria is now 900 naira per month versus the equivalent that I know in pounds is about 12 pounds a month or something like that. But then even just apart from the price to drive adoption, you also need a change in consumers' attitudes to consumption. So we're not a high consumption society at all. So even with this, Spotify is 900 naira, arguably quite affordable. But if you are more accustomed to getting things for free by alternative routes, so for instance, maybe even just using the Spotify free version or YouTube or even then downloading music illicitly in ways that you're not supposed to be downloading music there may not be like a huge incentive for you to then move it because we just don't really have that attitude of consumption outside of actually having that money so I think there are still a few a few things that we need to tackle so the infrastructure the literacy and general consumer attitudes arguably the most powerful enabler of consumption is the most obvious one increasing the income of potential consumers Simply put, more money in the pocket can mean more money to spend. So this means that the challenges of reaching consumers with small amounts of discretionary income shift when you're helping people to earn or receive their income, as Jake describes. Yeah, so that that kind of breaks that logic that I was talking through a while ago, where folks are just focusing most of their spending power on on necessities and stuff. And it's just hard to get into that very small sort of uh, amount of discretionary expenditure that they have. But that logic breaks if you're actually part of helping them create income. And I think put into that category, productive lending, maybe remittances, maybe. I think if you're helping people receive their income, people who are doing wages and, and things like that, but in particular platforms that are saying, look, you can make money on our platform that you couldn't make or maybe augment your existing income. So there's all kinds of different ways in which people make their money. And some of the folks you talk to are, are really making a lot more than they were before. Not, not, not everyone, but, but some. And so the thought is, wow, I mean, if you're really improving people's income, you can make a lot of money because everybody's better off. They're better off. You're helping them make income. You can make income off that fact and the platform, the people that get the service are better off. So there's like a creation of value there that's, uh, that's big enough that actually you can make money. And even if they, before they started working with you, were pretty poor or didn't have a lot of money to, to spend. The hustle economy platform, gig work, digital sales for small businesses and people where they can raise their income. We think big opportunity there to create a win-win with people, help them grow their income while, while you make money as well. 
Even temporary income increases, you know, the kind where you borrow from your future self or someone else in the form of credit, can aid consumption. So even the ability of being able to split a mobile phone purchase over 12 months, that's something that we might take for granted. In the UK, for instance, I know that that happens in America as well, that you can get a mobile phone contract and split the payments over two years. You don't think about it. You don't have to pay X hundreds or thousands of pounds or dollars for an iPhone that minute. And even having that ability to not have to pay, like, let's say a thousand pounds for an iPhone at the start means, okay, you can pay 50 pounds a month and you have another 950 pounds available that month to consume other goods and services as well. Yeah. And even outside of that, larger purchases, for instance, when it comes to the ability to own a house, mortgages, for instance, that's the same thing. It's a form of credit. So lending and credit when it comes to individuals, it is a way to be able to access a wider reach of goods and services that you would not be able to have that can then help you to become upwardly mobile as well. We mentioned earlier that the story of the moment is the influx of capital into African venture. The other part of that narrative is a high percentage of that capital, 60%, according to the African Venture Capital Association, that's captured by fintech. Of course, there are differing opinions as to what's driving this trend. Some claim, at least when it comes to valuations, that it's about foreign, low-interest capital seeking yield. Others argue that the fundamental remaking of African economies through digitalization is a massive, highly valuable opportunity. Barbara Iyayi, CEO and founding partner of Unicorn Growth Capital, explains how digitization is creating huge economic opportunities and fintech is serving as the backbone of a strong digital economy. 60% of Africans are unbanked. So you have a lot of people who are not using these banking rails, using these banking payment channels. 90% of transactions are still in cash. You have a whole host of SMEs, corporates, consumers that once they start doing these transactions through digital platforms, through digital payment rails, through mobile money, through mobile phones, through all these digital forms of communication, you're going to see a huge amount of growth. And once that happens, there's a lot of other businesses and other business models and industries that can be formed. And that's where the digital economy really becomes exciting is when you start creating new opportunities, new industries, new ways of generating revenues. So when people think about it, it's almost kind of like you're increasing the size of the pie and you're creating more job opportunities. Merging the traditional world into the digital economy is what I really want to see in Africa. That is really where you're going to drive a lot of growth in the digital economy. When we start seeing digital central banks, digital currencies, stable coins in Africa being used for transactions. I want to see those underlying transactions coming out of the traditional world into the digital world. That is a great way to see the growth of the digital economy. So when I start seeing like the older generation start putting money, when I say older generation, I mean older traditional sort of way of doing business, the entrepreneurs in those industries, some of the corporates in those industries, right? Once they start leveraging technology in a powerful way, not just by using technology, but by investing in technology, investing in some of these companies, that could be really powerful, really, really powerful for the digital economy because you're now bringing those guys into the digital economy. All those transaction flows that are going through those traditional industries are now suddenly being seen in in a digital way. That is going to be powerful. We need to start bringing in oil and gas, bringing in manufacturing, bringing in all these really traditional industries that are, frankly, the bread and butter for these economies. 
I think people sometimes think fintech is overhyped. And, and I always say fintech to me is just like what financial services is to the world, right? It's just literally the fabric of life. Any economy has to have a solid financial services system for that economy to thrive. You have to have a strong fintech ecosystem for you to have a strong digital ecosystem. So I look at fintech more as a horizontal than a vertical in that it's more of an enabler across all industries. And frankly, for Africa to get that digital economy thriving, fintech can do that with financial services, with innovating financial services. There are some industries in Africa that to digitalize that industry, you need financial services through fintech for that industry to be digitalized. A great example of this is logistics, right? For logistics, shipping, a lot of these sort of traditional industries, when you want to digitalize those industries, you can't do that without thinking about all the financing that those industries need. There's working capital, or there's trade finance, all sorts of different things, and then payment systems for money to be moving around some of these very cash-driven industries. FinTech is the glue to making that entire ecosystem be digitalized. Another argument supporting the strength of the FinTech opportunity is its fit to traditional VC. Denai feels this in here, but also emphasizes the need to recognize other opportunities. And I think, of course, when we talk about technology, we we typically in Africa only focusing on on FinTech, but there's more to tech than just uh, FinTech. There are multiple use cases. So I think we can really talk about a true success story when we see a multitude of use cases outside of fintech with technology within Africa. And so that's why I still say it's it's still early, but we did need fintech to be the forefront runner, right? Because it was maybe the easier investment case to make within an African context. And so we we amalgamate the risk profile of Africa and it's already perceived as too exotic as a location. And so there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in that way of creating it as a destination really with differences where you could really make investment cases in different geographies or different places. In other words, it's important to distill signal from noise and appreciate that lucrative micro-level opportunities can exist within a seemingly risk-filled macroeconomic picture. Here's Barbara to put this in a very neat nutshell. I think macro is still lots of noise. And we don't have to go on about what all those issues are. But I think honing in on that specific opportunity that is, frankly, growing at a faster rate than the macro opportunity. The digital economy, I believe, should be a whole thing to be tracked. I think there should be a digital economy index because I think that's moving at a different pace than when you look at all the other metrics, GDP, inflation or what have you. The micro-opportunity around the digital economy, the way these companies are growing, the revenue opportunities they're seeing, the valuations of these companies, like that is what is lucrative. So we've established that digitizing African economies is a massive opportunity. Fintech is an enabler of that opportunity. And purchasing power amongst most African consumers is challenged. But where does that leave us? Well, perhaps obviously, people aren't the only consumers. Businesses are also consumers. And according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies, SMEs specifically contribute about 80% of the jobs in Africa. This leads us to our fifth principle. 
that SMEs power tech startups by buying from them and supplying and funding SMEs is a VC scale opportunity. Gushe Nisimasilo, an associate for transaction management and consulting with Roots for Impact, explains how important thriving SMEs are to African venture ecosystems. And so I kind of see it as we can't have a thriving, growing tech startup space without people to buy. And so we can't be putting everything that we have into just one avenue. Without our tech startups, our traditional businesses are not going to become more efficient and internationally competitive. The same as without our traditional businesses, the tech startups are just not going to have customers, whether that is the SME as a customer or the people who work for the SME who are earning an income who are going to use the tech. And, you know, I said earlier that it's about moving these small businesses to the next level. And that's all about scalability and efficiency. And that really can't be achieved in a low cost way without these SMEs using this tech. So I think the key types of technology that we find as needed is tech that's going to help with management systems, processes. So just being able to manage the business better. Sales and marketing is key. That's a huge one. And tech that's going to provide us with as much data as we can get to be able to make sure that we're targeting who we say we're targeting. Now let's go back to Abeoa to explore digitizing SMEs, which Jake highlighted from a Pan-African perspective in the context of Nigeria. These small businesses drive Nigeria's massive informal economy, and their informality creates an equally sizable opportunity to increase their productivity. We have a huge informal economy. So the informal economy actually makes up about 65% of all businesses and employs the majority of the population. And even within that, when we look at the size of the businesses, MSMEs, medium, small, micro, small, medium enterprises employ a huge percent of the population. And so for anyone serving the B2B market, there is a huge opportunity in these markets that in theory should be able to trickle down to consumers. So looking at that kind of breakdown, it tells us a few things about the B2B market. So first of all, the fact that MSMEs are employing 85% of the population, which are small businesses. So it tells us that the B2B market is likely to be very fragmented as the majority of the businesses are small. It also tells us that they have a huge impact to the economy as well which means that there's a lot of work that can be done to help improve the productivity of these businesses, extract more value by bringing them online or digitize them, or even working as aggregators to help them decrease their costs and improving unit economics. When it comes to digital services in Nigeria, is actually something that we're seeing tends to be what a lot of operators and startups are addressing right now. And one of the reasons for this is that businesses, even small businesses, tend to have increased spending power. That's one reason. And the second reason is also because it's easier to leverage some of the existing network that it already exists when it comes to B2B businesses. So just to talk about each of those in turn, 
We've seen recently some startups have been either pivoting away from B2C models towards B2B models. And one example of this is a company called Glupro that actually started out as a grocery store e-commerce retailer and has actually pivoted into e-procurement. They moved away from the consumer's aspect into businesses. And one reason why some startups are doing this is because of spending power. So businesses are simply more willing and more able to spend money than individual consumers. And another reason for this as well is that when these operators are trying to reach scale, if you're looking at a B2C business, that actually it means that you have to kind of put more work into attracting a mass of individual consumers. And especially like we talked about when it comes to that trust basis, for instance, that's something that you might have to then work a bit harder for because you're not going to be able to have more face time with individual consumers. So some of the models that some, for instance, financial services providers have done is having these agent networks so that there is also an aspect of that human interaction as well to kind of move the needle further towards that digital transaction, but also meeting consumers where they are used to, which is the physical aspect. But then that means that you have to end up spending a lot more and deploying a lot more manpower in order to do that for consumers. Whereas for businesses, so how I will put it is basically, if you want to make a million dollars, you can either sell a thousand customers, a thousand dollar product, or sell 10,000 customers, a $10 product. And there are a few reasons why this is easier. So for instance, Again, like I said, deploying the manpower when it comes to distribution to B2B, you can often leverage the existing distribution networks that these companies use rather than always having to build new ones for the consumer class. Um, When it comes to customer acquisition as well, you have to basically acquire less customers. And when you look at the lifetime value of an individual consumer versus a business, the customer lifetime value is likely to be higher. In simple terms, you're getting more bang for your buck going after businesses. But in order for small businesses to access these services, they might need help getting acclimated to digital channels, which Abeoa highlights. On the B2B side as well, there are still aspects of this educating your customer as well. Because again, with some, some businesses that we've spoken to as well, they've said that even apart from doing their main business, for instance, like so a startup that might be providing, let's say, like electronic medical records. You can't just sell the medical records because then you also have to then train the staff on how to use them as well. Or you then may have to like partner with a solar electricity company, for instance, to make sure that that particular institution has the power to be able to run the program to actually do it. So there's also that element of like outside of your core business, a lot of the times we might take for granted what we might have in America or in the US where you can just start a business and plug and play. But over here, there's a lot of things that you have to build outside of it to be able to run your core business. Another compelling reason to serve and invest in small businesses is the reality of how tough it is to build consumer-facing companies. For starters, they require huge amounts of capital to fund the acquisition and retention of customers, as Agosa explains. One of the challenges, I think, when you chase consumer opportunities, and this is true for venture across the globe, is that venture-backed companies that go after consumer generally have to confirm one key prerequisite before they get started. 
and that is access to plentiful amounts of capital. Because every consumer opportunity, and maybe, you know, even extending that to maybe enterprise, but every consumer opportunity certainly has a very fundamental construct, which is what everybody calls CAC, what's the customer acquisition cost. And at scale, that starts to really matter. If your SAM is 5 million people, and it's going to cost you $20 to acquire each customer, then you're going to need to be able to have access to $100 million. Now, of course, you're acquiring each of the customers in that particular set, right, does not guarantee that you keep them. So it reminds me a lot of the olden days when e-commerce used to be hot. Maybe it's coming back now. But the olden days when e-commerce used to be hot in Africa, and one of the fundamental disconnects we kept seeing with e-commerce companies was not just the cost of acquiring a customer, but the nested cost of reacquiring the same customer, which meant that retention models were broken, churn was incredibly high, and these customers were what I'll call financially prudent hunted for discounts and deals, and had absolutely no loyalty to anything but the best price. So when you think about that, and there's, of course, the classic trope that the African consumer doesn't have that depth of pocket, then you've got this issue where what does it take to acquire them and keep them? And then the other issue is, do, do we have enough of them at scale where the math works and the economics work? And that's a challenge with consumer businesses. So we see these businesses occasionally, but you would you you find that a lot of the deals getting done tend to be small, medium, and large enterprise facing businesses. The bottom line is that healthy economies in Africa demand transformative tech companies and SMEs that create jobs and support livelihoods. Let's hear from Denai on that point. We also tend to forget that they are the really small SMEs, like. The auntie who has a milling company who just wants to mill her maize and basically she employs a couple of people and maybe she just needs a small amount of capital. Uh, but with that, she still makes quite good money. It's, she's quite cash positive. I think sometimes we over sensationalize the tech story and put a lot of emphasis on that while forgetting that there is a whole, there's a whole foundation, a bedrock of smaller businesses that really are, are also moving people's livelihoods in a different way. At this point, we've talked through the broad landscape of opportunity in African tech startups and VC, as defined by a stage in history where we see a new horizon in the capacity of African innovators, the call to digitize traditional, informal business, fintech as an enabler of the digital economy, and SMEs as consumers, enablers of individual consumers, and a source of venture scale opportunity. Of course, the way VC works, funds have to be properly positioned to cultivate these opportunities, which means they need working business models. But as we're about to hear, these can be difficult to come by. This reality informs our sixth principle, that Africa-focused funds, as do most VCs, have an uphill battle to develop working business models. As we know, the traditional VC model is a hard one to crack due to the demands of the power law. 
Given how risky startup investments are, as a VC, you expect a lot of failures, but you also expect to receive a significant reward for the significant risk you take to invest in one or two blockbuster successes that are sold for tens or hundreds of times the value of your fund. From Tony Chen, partner at Verdant Frontiers, our very first guest on the Trajectory Africa, we hear about how hard it is to make a viable business out of writing the earliest riskiest checks in African startups. One of the personal takeaways for me that was somewhat unexpected was that these smaller checks in the early stage African tech companies, you know, and by small, I mean maybe like $500,000 or less, I basically concluded that those checks are super strategic, really, really important, and also virtually impossible to do as a standalone business. There's really two problems, and the latter problem is bigger. The former problem is just a fundraising problem, which is you got to raise enough funds to have enough fees to live off of. And so for me as a first-time fund manager, you know, I'm not getting any institutional money. And I basically did the calculation of I'm going to be collecting a lot of $100,000 checks. And to get to, let's say, $20 million, that's 200 checks, which probably translates to about 2,000 meetings. So that would probably take me, to do 2,000 meetings probably takes me a few years. And that just gets me to the starting line. But let's say, just for argument's sake, I'm a really amazing fundraiser <laughs> and I could get to the starting line. I think the bigger problem is the deployment problem, which is if you're going to write these small checks, you've got a bare bones team. I mean, think about 100K checks out of a 16, you know, $20 million fund of which maybe $16 million gets deployed. I mean, that's like a that's like 100 checks at least, right? So, it's, so how do you manage a portfolio of 100 companies and how do you do that in a way that you got to get, again, you got to get in them quickly and then you got to start making the turn to get out of them quickly. Maybe I have an amazing intuition to pick the right ones, but it's just really hard to deploy that kind of capital when it's expensive to do origination and due diligence and the legal and the post-investment monitoring, you know, for a $20 million fund, I mean, you're talking about maybe two partners and one or two associates or portfolio managers, and the four of you have to run the whole thing. Of course, we definitely see some players, such as MicroTraction and First Check Africa, writing early-stage checks into African startups. But in my conversation with the GOSA, we break down, in brutally honest terms, the math behind globally competitive fund performance. You've got a $50 million fund, and so the math essentially works out whereby you need to generate roughly around $500 million, give or take, to return 1x. Now, there's an argument, it could be 400, it could be 500, but if you adjust for you know, devaluation and forex volatility, yeah. But it's a 10-year period, so you really have to adjust. There will be a very significant adjustment in forex. But you've got to return $500 million of enterprise value to return one times the fund. So if you are going to try to get to, and, and these numbers are insane, and that's why I don't want to scare people off. You know, so there is sort of a gross return and a net return. But if you are going to try to return 3X on that fund, you're going to have to generate north of $1.35, $1.4 billion in enterprise value, which goes back to the original point you, you started off with when you pointed about what I said about the Paystack exit, which was fantastic, fantastic team, lovely guys, did really well, did great for the investors, awesome. But 
if the investors were a group of angels and maybe some small funds and whatever it is, right? Nice. But if there was a $50 million fund invested in Paystack, that's, that literally was not the return. They would have done it. On quick math, right? We just did some very quick math. And if a fund manager at a $50 million fund size writing a million dollar checks had done pretty much a static deal like that in Paystack, a million dollars, you get maybe you know 10% of the company, you don't adjust for dilution. There would a fund manager would need roughly 10 of those deals to to hit this target return threshold. You need 10 paystacks. Egosa goes on to explain how high valuations, which translate to overpriced assets, adversely affect fund performance. And so what you then find is as the prices of assets sort of go wild, so to speak, you, you change the arc, the arc and the end point of the outcomes that you need to make your investing decisions make sense and to drive positive outcomes and returns. So that's, that's, that's a challenge, right? So what you then find as well, though, when you think about portfolio construction, which is what I was talking about geo and sector diversity is, Whenever a sector is super hot, it means there's a whole bunch of them that are not. And it also then means that founders who are in those other sectors struggle to raise capital. And and so their assets are essentially cheaper than, say, fintech assets. So let's look at that intersection of the product and the market. Right? Is this a market that is a secret or it's not? Because what you also find is Big markets attract a lot of attention. And and generally speaking, if your competitor is super well-funded or doesn't come from your geography, but super well-funded, they can confuse the market. Clearly, one might make an argument that the outcomes-related difficulties that Agosa describes might be a function of the LPGP structure that most funds use because the performance expectations and distributions of profit are embedded in it. But as we'll hear from Arenike Sharif, who manages fund operations at Future Africa, there are significant challenges associated with choosing different models. Right now, we have a pipeline worth about $750,000, all founders that we want to invest in great deals, but we can't deploy the money because we've simply just exhausted the money we have to deploy for this quarter. So if we're going to deploy, we have to wait till October it's not the best position to be in, even though founders are really gracious and they hold the slots open for us because they just know that we're a great partner to have and we start working with them to provide value from day one. But it's not nice. It's not fun to manage those timelines. Sometimes I wish like we had just raised $5 million in the beginning and know exactly how much we have. But as with anything, significant challenges often create significant opportunities. In this case, the opportunity is to democratize investing, as Arenike explains. And then another real challenge is that we found out that the investing world is designed for only people in the United States. Like It's almost as if there's the only ones who would ever be interested in investing in technology assets. It's things like how to verify that people meet that accreditation criteria. And it's just tough to manage that for investors in emerging markets. For me, what the future looks like is building solutions that make it easy for investors in emerging markets to invest in technology assets. Right now we have something, but the process is cumbersome, right? I don't want to ever 
tell people no, they can't invest just because they don't make $200,000 a year. Like, that's an insane amount of money to ask somebody who is living here in Nigeria. That's, you know, millions and millions of naira. And sometimes they have the $5,000, right? They've saved it up or they've pulled it for, from their friends. They should have the opportunity to be able to invest in this asset. Like, by Nigerian and African standards, they are high net worth individuals. They are working great legal jobs. Sometimes it's things like the KYC that drops them off like they're making that money but you know according to u.s rules and u.s laws it's just tough to have them invest in the companies or invest in the funds you understand what i mean so just creating solutions that make it easier for people no matter where they are in the world to invest in technology companies also if you zoom out a bit there are many systemic challenges to fund performance as babakar explains africa is not an easy place to to do business I think you have a lot of volatility in terms of regulation, macroeconomics, and that does not help. If I'm very specific, I'd give two reasons. One reason is foreign exchange. Often the funds are denominated in euro or dollar, and you have very high rates of inflation in certain African countries, and you also have devaluations. So when you buy a Nigerian asset in 2015 and then the currency loses 50% in 2016, even if your company has been growing 20% per year, you still have 40% depreciation in your investment. And so that, that's one factor that is more at the macro level. At the micro level, you have a very high variance between the value add that some funds are bringing and the one that others are bringing. And I think there's a lot of communication around what value is brought to the company. You, you see that the funds that bring more value really get to support the founding teams. They usually get better returns. I think that's one of the areas where the industry can improve. And that, my friends, concludes our tour of the so-called principles of African venture opportunities according to the trajectory Africa. But we're not done yet. The last two points I'd like to share as I wrap up this reflection on the series aren't principles per se, but I do think they're observations about the barriers that Africans and women face to raising VC funds and the impact of the slowing global economy on African startup and VC ecosystems that are worth sharing. Let's tackle barriers to entry first. We're well aware at this point that Africans, especially women, are not as well represented as they should be amongst GPs and fund managers on the continent. But the key question is, why? We're back with Babakar, who will share how certain fundraising requirements make it difficult to get in the investing game. You will mostly have people who already had a large amount of resources or access to, to those resources who will be able to, to, to make this sacrifice, to make this investment. A second reason is also that, as I mentioned, as part of the due diligence process, the top three things that we look at are, you know, team, unique selling proposition, and prove us that you can make returns. And the third and, and, and second point are, are very related in that you often need someone who has already been investing. You know, they have to prove that they can invest and you cannot prove it just by saying it unless you have founded and sold two very good companies, which also takes a lot of time. Of course, there are very good reasons, as we'll hear from Barbara, for LPs to think differently about the value that emerging fund managers bring to the table, and ultimately, why African GPs need bigger funds. I think one of the key things from all the conversations I've had with emerging managers globally is that people have to change the way they look at or, or enhance the way they, they assess funds. It's actually an enhancement, right? 
Because one of the powerful things about being an emerging manager is, is the innovation that you bring to the industry. Managers are giving you diversity. They're giving you new ways of investing. They're giving you new types of companies that are overlooked by other managers. That is innovation. That is opportunity. And that is returns, real returns. Emerging managers have different types of track records, right? They don't have the cookie cutter track record that people expect. They, they have track record that might in, include deep networks, deep relationships, founder ecosystems that would lead to innovation. That's how this system can change. It starts from the LPs doing things differently, and then that flows to more diverse GPs, which creates a more diverse ecosystem with the founders. Now, where we see a huge gap is when a lot of these companies start raising money for Series A, Series B. And then, you know, frankly, they can't raise money in Africa. They have to go outside Africa. Anybody who's trying to raise that sort of Series A capital, Series B capital, 10 million to like 20, 30 you're likely going to have to go to Silicon Valley or, or outside Africa. Private equity funds typically play in that space or 20, 30, 40 plus, but private equity firms want to see profitable companies, cash flow generating companies. So if you're a startup that's not any of that, you have to go to Silicon Valley. So where we see the opportunities to create a sizable fund where we can invest at the seed and series A stage and we can follow on capital so that our founders know that we're definitely going to be investing throughout the next couple of rounds that they do. I've been investing and been in finance for 16 years. Like I want to make sure that these companies grow and become sustainable companies. And the number one way to do that is with capital. And what African founders lack compared to the other ecosystems out there, Latin America, Southeast Asia, is capital. We don't have sizable VC funds in Africa that can give these companies capital through the, the, the life cycle of their growth. And that's not what's happening in Asia and Latin America. And we're seeing huge companies form in those regions because they have local funds that are sizable enough to invest in these companies. And they're also attracting international funds. Now, Africa is attracting a lot of international funds, but there is still a need to have the local African funds where you have fund managers that actually understand the, the local environment and, and have boots on ground in Africa operating, working with these companies, um, with these founders. We need more of them that have sizable funds. All right, friends, we've now officially reached the end of the Trajectory Africa Rewind. We've reflected on the Trajectory Africa's 11 episodes in order to derive six key principles that might help us understand how African venture works. Let's do a quick recap. Principle number one, now is the time for Africans to solve their own problems and build their own future. Principle numero dos, the future of African venture opportunities is digitizing African economies. Principle number three, let's say together, African consumers may have limited purchasing power, but it's possible to increase and enable consumption. Coming in hot is principle number four. FinTech is an important enabler for digitizing African economies because it provides foundational infrastructure. Principle number five, SMEs power tech startups by buying from them and funding and supplying SMEs is a VC scale opportunity. And last but not least, principle number six, Africa-focused funds, as do most VCs, have an uphill battle to develop working business models. So now that we've looked backward to seek foundational points to consider, it also makes sense to look forward to see what's on the horizon. For this, we'll turn to Agosa for his take on what could happen to the flow of investment capital into Africa as a global economy slows down. 
one concern I think is that there's phenomenal amount of global liquidity. The U.S. is powering a lot of that. And if for any reason, global economies, especially in emerging markets, have to put the brick on growth and because of inflation risk and the like, a lot of this capital that is looking for yield, not necessarily high risk yield, but yield will, will disappear. So I think that even with the trajectory, I'm still not 100% confident that there is true conviction behind the dollars. And I mean, that's always a wait and see thing, but we'll have to see. I've been through sort of two, two economic recessions and, and it's the behavior during the recession that tells you a lot about the investor and not the behavior when everybody's right and everybody's making money hand over fist and, and it seems to be really easy for everybody to make money. And from Babakar, we'll hear his take on the impact of this global economic shift and the type of capital that African markets need to thrive going forward. I, I think the drivers of the adjustment are going to be both internal and specific to the market and also global. I'll start with the global. On the global level, we have very low interest rates that are driving capital into riskier and riskier sectors. Uh, and VC is considered to be one of the riskier asset classes. And it has attracted more and more capital because of the low rates offered by other assets. And VC in emerging markets, you could say, is probably at the tail end in terms of risk and return. And I think a lot of capital has come into the continent in the past year or two. It's not necessarily long-term capital. It's more opportunistic. And so I'm not entirely sure that these one-time investors are going to stay in the long term, except if some of them actually set up funds that are dedicated to the continent. So I think as interest rates are expected to rise in the coming years in developed markets, there will be a little less capital coming from abroad. I think that will be one adjustment factor. One other adjustment factor, which is the most natural one when valuations are too high, is that at some point you will have companies that will have raised significant amount of funds that will not be able to deliver on the promises. And what usually happens when investors realize that they will not be able to recoup their investments or that the company is not going to be successful is that they're either going to try to exit quickly and potentially at a lower valuation than the latest round, or they will just stop funding the company. And so this is going to drive a decrease in valuations, especially, I think, at the later stage and then progressively at the earlier stages. Because what all investors say when I speak to them, whichever the stage, is that the valuation of companies has increased a lot initially at the late stages and more and more at the earlier stages. And no one's really managing to make sense of this, but it's probably driven by the volume of capital. And so I think there will be an adjustment. I think it's important to take into account that Africa has also other specific macroeconomic and political characteristics that are different from the rest of the world. We have foreign exchange risk with devaluations. We have political risk related to the stability of our states. And we also have a quite fragmented continent in terms of regulations and, and markets. And, and so it makes it harder to scale uh, across markets easily. And it makes it also a riskier continent from a macroeconomic standpoint. So that has driven lower valuations in the private equity market, which is now 20, 25 years old. 
And I think it will also drive lower valuations in the VC market. We need more long-term capital. And by long-term capital, I mean funds, I mean corporate venture capital, I mean players that are really committed and dedicated, not just trying to take advantage of the latest wave. And we need less tourism capital that's just coming in and potentially impacting the way the market works rather than adding value to the ecosystem. I mean, it's a good thing that African founders get high valuations, but those valuations need to be sustainable because in the end, if the valuations are too high, you you end up in a situation where people are not innovating anymore. They're just trying to outspend rather than trying to find smart solutions to solve the big problems facing the continent. And... Therefore, I think that's the main reason why we need a more virtuous ecosystem where it's really the good companies that get the money and people who are doing the work. And that's all, folks. Thank you for tuning in to the first and only edition of the Trajectory Africa Rewind. In reflecting on how to end this summary episode, I'm brought back to one of the thornier decisions I made while producing it, whether or not to use the word principle. It denotes truth in a way that makes me really squirmy. But ultimately, I chose to use it and attach a connotation of aspiration, proto-principles, or principles in development, if you will. Because what else can you do in the rapidly evolving contexts that characterize African venture but aspire? Hopefully, time will be kind to my assumptions. We'll see. Until next time.